Welcome to A Church in the City, a podcast sharing messages, sermons, and talks from downtown Christian Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We exist to empower a movement of passionate Jesus followers. We hope that this word can encourage you and strengthen your relationship with God. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning. Am I on? I am, huh? Morning to people here. Morning to people out there. Is anybody else just finally starting to warm up? It was kind of cold in here this morning, but we finally found the thermostat and fixed it. I hope. I hope. So, if anybody wants to follow along, we're going to be we're going to be focusing a little bit on Psalm 103 today, off and on, but we'll be all over the place probably. So, here's my question. Has anybody changed jobs lately? What kind of benefit package comes with your new position? I'm sure you took pains to find that out before you signed on. Wages, personal time, insurance, vacation, holidays. Of course, neither of those things or your job are part of who you are. They're just things you'd earn as part of your compensation for doing your job. So let me ask a different question. Has anyone done anything special for you lately? Something you're grateful for, something you didn't earn? Your spouse, your children, your parents, your friends, somebody at work or at school. Maybe they gave you a gift you didn't expect or wouldn't have thought you deserved. Often such things are done on the QT, behind the scenes by people who don't really toot their own horns very much. It's not like the State of the Union address where the president stands in front of the Congress and relates all the wonderful things she's been doing and plans to do, even if half of them were already done by her predecessor or or initiated by the predecessor. They all do that, right? I'm talking about people who bless you in their own quiet way. Our God, for example. He's not a self-aggrandizing braggart about what he does for us. I think Shauna talked about that a little bit this morning. He is here to show off, though. He does like to show off. But he doesn't do it in a, in a, in a prideful, bragging type way. He likes to boast. He likes to showcase his glory. But he's not a glory hound. He doesn't do that because it makes him feel big and special. He's already the biggest and specialist thing around. He doesn't need to boost his self-esteem. He's totally self-sufficient. He's not interested in impressing you. He wants to get your attention because he knows that he's the best thing around. And I don't mean that he does that in a prideful way. I mean he actually just simply knows, without being arrogant about it, that the only way that we can ever become all that he, our maker, has designed us to be, created us to be, longs for us to be, is if we will align ourselves with him and get to know him and learn to love him. That's pure love on his part. Being totally committed to helping others grow into all that they can be, to achieve whatever's best for them at whatever the cost. We're designed to love and serve him and to share that joy with everybody we meet. And without him, we're totally incomplete. So he shines a spotlight on his character in on his actions. A good example of that is the preface to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, where 
where God introduces himself by saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Or listen to what they sing using Psalm 126. I think I alluded to this last week. When, when re they remember that he did that a second time. He brought them out of bondage from exile in Babylon. And when they came back, they would sing, the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And it felt like we were in a dream. And our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Even our neighbors among the nations said, look at what God has done for them. He's done good things for them. The Lord has done good things for us. And we are joyful. I love that song. It's even better sung. It's a great song. It's a song we should all be singing. All the time, everywhere, celebrating our own rescue. Or how about John 3.16 when he says, he gave his only son to rescue us because he loves us. There seems to be a theme going on here of rescue from bondage and oppression. We also find a lot of occasions in scripture where somebody else has taken the initiative to turn the spotlight on our God, to remind us of just how amazing he is. We see that especially in the Psalms. Psalm 103 is like that, and I hope we can take a couple minutes today and tear that apart. I choose it because the Holy Spirit speaks to me through this psalm because I forget. And he convicts me and he reminds me, and I'm hoping he'll do the same thing for you. It's rather like Jesus instituting the sacrament of communion, using bread and wine to represent his body and his blood and telling us to do this often. Why? In remembrance, lest we forget. Because we do forget. And he knows that. In his mercy, he knows that because you lived among us. So he provides us a memorial to help us remember what he did for us and how his sacrifice was a visual and an actual representation of the love of God for his children and all the benefits we enjoy because of what he did. Scripture, the Old Testament in particular, is filled with occasions of God telling his people to build a memorial here and build a memorial there even naming their towns and their children and their water wells in ways that would remind them of what God has done for them. And scripture is just as full of stories about God's people forgetting what he's done for them. And so he knows we need frequent reminding. And that's important because these benefits that we're going to talk about today, these benefits are part of your identity. I can recall memorizing most of Psalm 103 when I was a little boy and being able to recite it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the benefit package that comes along with being part of Abba's family business as sons and daughters of the king. So like that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, this psalm begins with praise in adoration for God, including praise for his holiness, his uniqueness, his distinctiveness. The psalmist, the songster, surely David, perhaps in his later years when he's really truly begun to appreciate the Lord's mercy and his pardon and his unfailing love. David sings this song of praise. and We find it like this in the renegade reformed version. David says, give praise and adoration to Yahweh, my soul, and along with every other aspect of my being, bless his holiness. 
Kneel before him, my soul, and forget not the vast extent of what he does for you. Listen, he erases your feelings of guilt and shame. I think there's a reason that this is the first one on the list. I think it's because if we can't get past our guilt and our shame and our feelings of failure and inadequacy that come along with that, not being able to understand how God could possibly love us despite ourselves, if we can't get past that, we're never going to be able to embrace and appreciate the other benefits that this psalm talks about. In Genesis 3.21, well, Adam and Eve frantically fumble trying to hide their, their guilt and their shame with inadequate fig leaf loincloths that they themselves fabricated. God steps up and provides them with tunics made of animal skins to cover their exposure. Now, unless God miraculously produced these skins from nothing, which he could do, this would be the first recorded instance in scripture of animal sacrifice resulting in a covering for mankind's guilt and shame. You read your scripture, you'll find that God, more often than not, steps up on his own and provides the sacrifice. Otherwise, throughout the Old Testament, covering of guilt and shame was accomplished by animal sacrifice conducted by priests. And in the New Testament, Revelation 3.18 speaks of garments of white that Jesus, now our great high priest, can provide to cover nakedness and shame through his own sacrifice. There's a big difference, by the way, between guilt and shame. Guilt is about conduct, behavior, actions, something you've done or that you perceive to be wrong. Shame is about your condition, your belief about yourself, your attitude. It's not something you did, but it's about something you are or perceive yourself to be. You accept being shameful as part of your identity. Our merciful God provided a savior who ransomed us from the debt that made us feel guilty. And he declared us to be righteous, guilt-free, nothing left to be ashamed of, nothing left to pay for. That's what biblical scholars call the act of justification. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that having been justified or declared righteous by faith, that is by the confidence we've placed in the power of the blood of Jesus, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're reconciled to him and we can live in harmony with him. And he covers us with that blood of Jesus, thereby cleansing us from our shame and transforming us into the image of that very Savior. That's the process of sanctification. It follows right on the heels of justification. That is to say, grafted into the vine, the believer, the branch, will become more and more like the vine with each passing day. Notice, by the way, the name of God that David uses in this psalm. It's interesting. God has a lot of names in scripture. David could have said El Shaddai, God Almighty, which is how God introduces himself to Abram in Genesis 17. Or he could have said Adonai, Lord, Master, which is a title used in many places in the Old Testament. In fact, it's an address preferred by many of the Jewish leaders of that day because they were so concerned about people using God's real name in vain. So they often substituted Adonai. But more interesting is the fact that Adonai is the plural, the plural form of that of that name, 
just as is Elohim. It's another name commonly used. It simply means God. It's the name used in the first few chapters of Genesis. In the beginning, Elohim, plural. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And Elohim said, let us make mankind in our image. Here, David calls him by his actual name, his real name, Yahweh, the Lord. Next, David reminds us that Yahweh, the Lord, heals our diseases. Jonathan talked about this this morning, and it was a perfect, perfect word. We watch Jesus walk through his earthly ministry, making healing a major focus, physical, spiritual, emotional, relational, psychological. Jesus is the Savior, the one who brings about our salvation. But salvation in Scripture is not narrow. It's not particular. It's not just about sin. Salvation in Scripture is comprehensive. It's about bringing health and wholeness to every aspect of being. Matthew 4.24 says that the reports about Jesus spread far and wide, and folks brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And then we read in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 4 to 6, that by the bruises and wounds that were inflicted upon the suffering servant, that's Jesus, we are healed. We are made whole. This verb is in the Hebrew perfect affect, meaning that it's not about when it happened. It's about the completion of the action. It's about that it happened. In other words, it's simply done. It's finished. The mission is accomplished, including the healing of diseases. Sickness and brokenness and bondage in all their manifestations are a result of the curse that accompanied the fall. Jesus' death and resurrection and all that he endured reversed that curse and made it null and void for those who believe in the power of the blood of Jesus. And Jesus not only healed, but he made healing possible in his name by believers. We, the church, have been authorized to continue that action. Listen to what scripture says about that. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter says that by Jesus' wounds we are healed. James 5.14, James says, let the elders pray and lay on hands and anoint with oil for healing. Luke 10, where Jesus sends out the 72, and those weren't the elders, by the way. He tells them to heal the sick and announce the imminence of the kingdom of God. Mark 16, another iteration of the Great Commission, where Jesus sends them out to heal. 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul tells us that the Spirit gives gifts of healing to the church. In John 14, verse 12, where Jesus tells his disciples that they will do what he's already done too, and even greater than what he's been doing. So if healing is already accomplished by Jesus' suffering, then it's simply our job to carry that completion into the present situation, to confirm it, to claim it, to expect it to be revealed in those for whom we pray. So, he heals us from guilt and shame. He heals our diseases. And then David says that he ransoms your life from the destruction toward which it was heading. A lot of us don't get that. I know I don't most of the time. In Romans 3.23, Paul says that all of us have sinned 
and we've missed the mark that God would have us hit. We've sinned. It's not something we want to hear usually, but hey, I didn't write it. I just repeat what I read. We've talked about this before, but the Greek word used here for sin is hamartia. It means missing the mark. It's a moral or ethical failure. The mark, the target that God would have us hit is to be like Jesus. And we so often miss it. And then in chapter 623, Paul warns us that the consequence of missing that mark is death. So if we've all sinned, then we were already condemned to death. But listen, here's the good news. Jesus paid that debt. He provided a ransom from that sentence. We are recreated and we are made new. He sacrificed himself to do so. The alternative would be that we'd have to follow the law and keep it perfectly. Well, good luck with that. We might have been able to do that before mankind fell, but certainly not now. But we don't have to, though we should try, because he gifted us with his Holy Spirit, who draws us into newness of life and into the righteousness of Christ. The Hebrew word used here for redeems or ransoms is the same word used when the book of Ruth talks about Boaz being Ruth's kinsman redeemer. If you haven't read that book, it's just a little short book and it's a gem. Spend some time in it. Kinsman redeemer is somebody who, according to the Jewish laws found in the books of Moses, has the privilege or the responsibility of acting on behalf of a near relative who's in danger of losing life or property or inheritance or position. He's a near relative standing in as a deliverer for another near relative by paying a ransom of some kind. And as we were in danger of losing everything as a consequence of missing God's mark, Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, stepped in to ransom us from that debt and restored our fortunes, our life, and our good name. And then David goes on to say that God surrounds you. He covers you. He crowns you with unfailing love and with compassion. The word used here for the love of God is hesed. I can't even pronounce it. If Kelly Nickerson was here, she could help me out with that but highlights the faithfulness, the kindness, the goodness that characterizes the way the triune God feels about you. And like its Greek counterpart, agape, used in the New Testament, hesed carries connotations of being unconditional because it's God's choice, founded in grace, not on the basis of anything that we are or we do or we neglect to do. It's often accompanied by the word steadfast, firm, solid, dependable, Constant, unwavering. Read Romans 8, 31 through 39 for Paul's understanding of this sort of love. It's a passage he concludes by saying that neither death nor life nor angels nor authorities, not things present or things in the future, nor rulers in the spiritual realm, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to come between us and separate us from the love of God as revealed to us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not our sin, not our rebellion, not our addictions, nor our unfaithfulness, not our bad marriages, not our abusiveness, not our sketchy lifestyles, 
nothing. That's the kind of love that David's talking about here. We're surrounded by it. We're steeped in it. We stand in it. It's a covenantal relationship. It's a unilateral covenant. That is, it's one-sided. The initiative is all on God's part. And there's nothing we can do to change it or to undo it. What a noisy cup. David goes on to say now that our God enriches our lives to completeness with prosperity, with good things, with satisfaction so that you are refreshed with a new lease on life. We're not talking about the prosperity gospel here. That's, that leans pretty heavily on the material side of God's blessings. Nor is there any suggestion that this is going to cancel out any adversity or trials in your life. What we're talking about here is more on the spiritual side, the emotional, the psychological, those things that Jesus brings wholeness to. We often speak of people having a God hole, with many people spending their lives and expending all their resources and energy trying to fill that gap with power, prestige, knowledge, career, wealth, sex, fame, drugs, alcohol, games, you name it. Anything but having to give up their autonomy and having to turn control over their lives to someone or something else. Like that's not what happens with prestige and knowledge and wealth and sex and career and fame and drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. A relationship with our maker and our savior is what fills that hole. It's the only missing puzzle piece that fits and completes us and that's available to us as his children. It's one of our benefits. It's part of our benefit package. And then David reminds us that Yahweh brings about vindication and justice for the oppressed, the violated, the marginalized, the bullied, the defrauded, the disenfranchised of the world. We may get frustrated with God's timing, but bullies and oppressors will have a reckoning before his throne. If not what we call now, then certainly later. Remember that our God operates in eternity. So timing may not be his primary focus as much as the right time. There's two words in the New Testament for timing. Two Greek words, chronos, which means hours, days, minutes, the kind of stuff measured on our watch. And kairos, which means the right time, the perfect time, the opportune time. Listen. Our God doesn't wear a watch, but he is always watching. And he will take account for anybody trying to thwart his good purposes. In the meantime, it's not our job to judge or to seek vengeance. He'll take care of that. But we can rest assured that his heart is specially turned toward the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the stranger within our gates, as the Old Testament says. True biblical justice is about the restoration of God's designs and intentions. Let me repeat that. True biblical justice is about the restoration of God's design and intent, and he will make it happen in the fullness of time. Another benefit that David calls out is that our God doesn't hide things from his friends. God revealed himself to Moses and his mighty deeds to the people of Israel his glory, his character, his activities. And that includes the church because we are the new and present Israel. Now, even more so than what the original Israel enjoyed, 
because now he has revealed himself more plainly, more fully through Jesus Christ. John 15, 15, Jesus says, no longer do I consider you servants who do just what they're told. Everything I learned from my Father, I've revealed to you. Having knowledge of our God and what he's done and what he's doing and what he's about to do is a huge blessing. Something that with all their multiplicity of gods, the pagans don't have. Our God is transparent to us now since revealing himself to us through Jesus, the Logos, the tangible expression of his heart and will. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, David reminds us. He's patient and his unconditional love has no limitations. It's another benefit the pagans are missing out on. Their gods are whimsical. You never know what kind of mood they're going to be in. They're often malicious. They often seem to be jealous of mankind, and they make people's lives miserable. Everything they do is designed to satisfy themselves in some way. And of course, they don't really exist anyway. They're just wood or stone or fantasy. It's people's perception of what might be happening. People typically can't accept what's going on, so they need something to blame. So they invent gods. In our case, however, our God invented us. He is the only true and real God. He is good and he's selfless. Even when we don't understand the what and the why and the when, we can trust that God has our interests at heart. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 suggests that the Lord's patience is tied to his love and his mercy and that he doesn't want anybody to perish. And so he waits for us all to come to repentance. His love is boundless. David says Yahweh will not always quarrel or contend with us, nor will he hold resentment against us forever. Like the gods invented by the pagans and worshiped by the pagans, they do hold resentment forever. Read the accounts of the gods of the Mayans and the Aztecs and the Incas, the Norse gods, the Roman gods, the Greek gods, African tribal gods, the Oriental gods. They're worse than misbehaving, petulant, spoiled children. Those who serve those gods never know what to happen. They never know what to expect from one minute to the next because those gods constantly need to be pacified. At least that's the way men have invented them. Whereas we already have peace with God, brought about by the one-time sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's the beauty of Christianity. We can serve our God with full confidence in his unchanging goodness, kindness, mercy, and love. And we don't have to earn it. Even now, says David, he has not punished us according to what we deserved for our sinful condition. The wage of sin is death. That's the punishment for missing the mark that was mandated by our king. But we have been spared from that. We've been ransomed from that debt by the blood of Jesus. There's an old statement, old but true, that describes mercy as not getting what you deserve and grace as getting what you do not deserve. Our God deals with us with both mercy and grace. Because he is good, listen to this, as far as the stars are removed from the earth, so overpowering and overarching is his goodness and mercy toward those who revere and worship him. And as far as the east is from the west, did I do that right? As far as the east is from the west, that far has he removed our rebelliousness from our account. Maybe that's a figure of speech. 
halfway around the world, Greenwich, England to Midway Island in the Pacific, 12,500 miles. But it's a strong and graphic figure of speech. It's a strong and graphic figure of, uh, of God's mercy and his grace. David says our God is like a father, our Abba, who pities his children and takes account for who and what we are. He sees us, his children. He knows exactly who and what we are. Jesus experienced everything that we do. And he knows how fleeting are our days and how little a mark mankind will leave on the world. David paints us a picture contrasting the elusive, fading, fleeting, short-lived existence of mankind against the mercy and the loving kindness of Yahweh, which is from forever to forever toward those children who believe their Heavenly Father to be awesome beyond measure. The way he rules his kingdom, his justice, his righteousness, toward every generation of those with whom he has covenanted. His love for us is eternal. In other words, where there was, is, or will be, Yahweh, there will be found the love of God. It, they're a package. It goes along. They go together. And to those who honor the covenant by keeping his commandments, he will extend that love. In that same John 15 passage, Jesus said, I consider you to be my friends since you keep my commandments. And then lastly, sounding like the ending to the Lord's Prayer, we hear David say that Yahweh has established his seat of royal power in heaven, in the boundless realm, and he exercises dominion over everything and everyone. Even to his angels, hosts of angels, we say, bless him, give him worship, bend the knee before him, you who are strong and mighty, you who do his bidding, serving at his pleasure. Let everything he ever does anywhere in his boundless kingdom, every action, everything he makes, all of his business and his achievements, let it all bring praise and honor to his name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. The worship team can come back up, if you would. It's inspiring, I think. We serve an amazing God. Whether you call him Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim, El Shaddai, Abba Father, Jesus Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. But if you agree, then that begs the question, inspired toward what? So you have this position that comes with these amazing benefits. How do you respond? Well, if this was a job and you felt you had an amazing employer who treated you amazingly well, how would you respond? Probably, first and foremost, you'd be a devoted company guy or gal. You'd go out of your way to advance the interests of the business and to do what you were asked to do to the best of your capacity. Well, as we've just seen, we do have an amazing position in an amazing business with an amazing boss, our Abba's family business. Our response to that is to gratefully complete our assignment. That assignment is found at the end of Matthew 28 and in Mark 16 where Jesus says, hey, I'm going home now, so you guys got to get busy. And while you're on your way, announce the good news of the gospel. Disciple everybody who's not a believer, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow my ways. That's the assignment that Jesus gave to what at that time comprised the church. 
The church may have changed, but the assignment has not. The Gospel of Mark ends by telling us that that's just what they did, and they preached everywhere, and they did what they were told, and the Lord worked with them. And you can expect the same. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about DCC, get involved in one of our ministries, or give to support us, you can find us at achurchinthecity.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at Downtown Christian Church for Sunday morning set lists, sermon series announcements, and much more. You can also join us live on YouTube every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. Just search for Downtown Christian Church. Thank you for listening.